Today we're privileged to have the uh, Carlisles uh, join us today. They're our missionaries to Cambodia, and our relationship goes back with them uh, quite a few years. I was just uh, talking with Michael, and we were talking that when we started our church plant in 2001, they were part of uh, Grace Baptist of Waterford, and they and their pastor, uh, Pastor Gocher, uh, came down here. And I remember, that I think it was like we had maybe a, a couple of churches that helped us out. But I was very impressed because they had a very uh, good group of uh, individuals that came, and they helped us canvas the area. Uh, doing that necessary work that we needed to to get our uh, our name out into the community. So I appreciated that. Uh, back in uh, 2008, I think, that we brought them on as uh, missionaries. We were giving them support starting in 2008. And then in 2009, they went to uh, Cambodia uh, to start their uh, ministry there. But I've always been very impressed uh, speaking with them and uh, Michael on how he came to uh, being burdened to uh, go into missions and uh, he worked just an everyday job like uh, like I do uh, in sales. And he was telling me about that. And he went on some short-term missionary trips, which I think that a num- number of you have done as well. And that Lord really used uh, those short-term missionary trips to really to burden him to be able to, uh, to go into missions. And I was always uh, impressed with uh, his story regarding that. I always hold uh, missionaries in high regard because it really does take... A lot of courage, I believe, uh, to go into uh, missions because you are going into a foreign land that you do not know. I mean, you're leaving family behind. And uh, so my um, hats off to them for, for what they have done. I, I remember thinking back in high school, I went to a Christian school and always, you know, you think about being in the center of Lord's will and what he, what he had have for you. And I always used to think, oh, Lord, please don't send me into missions because uh, it's, uh, it's a difficult work. But uh, anyway, I took one foreign language in my career at that school, and that was German. And I got a D minus minus in there. So... I think maybe, the, and obviously a lot of that was, I just didn't have my head into into German at that point, but I think the Lord was just telling me that uh, you're not going anywhere. So, so thus, I'm still in this area, and I'm uh, in my mid-50s. So anyway, I do appreciate uh, your ministry there, and uh, we look forward to our relationship in the years to come. So please, brother, come and tell us a little bit about your work in uh, Cambodia. So it's probably not a good thing to start off by saying Sprechen Sie Deutsch? <laughs> I took German for two years and don't remember much more than what I just said, so I'm proud to remember that. <laughs> um, yeah, we are. We have a very unique relationship with this church because there are a lot of churches or a few churches that helped us get into the ministry, but there aren't many churches that we helped get into the ministry. <laughs> so we were here at the beginning with community. We were here, well, I shouldn't say here, we were talking at the break as well that Julie and I have been here, I think, in five different buildings. And we're hoping when we come back in five years, we'll still be in this one. <laughs> but the commissioning service, we, we attended the commissioning service, and that was at an elementary school, right? And uh, on deputation, we were in a couple of different buildings with you a couple of times as well. And then our last furlough was a different, it was a high school, right? 2012. So anyway, it is a great pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, we have our latest prayer update is on the table. It was very kindly printed out so you can pick that up and see what the latest prayer request and the latest status of our ministry is. What I'd like to do this morning for a lot of you who are new is just kind of give an overview of what uh, our ministry entails in Cambodia. Uh, before I do that, though, um, I would like to show you a video presentation that was made by members of our mission board. It's going to give you an idea of the place that we're serving and the obstacles to belief in that country. And what you'll see in the video, I'm going to tell you in advance, but what you're going to see are really two major prayer requests. One is for believers in Cambodia. You're going to see the challenge they face just to believing in the gospel. And then really the missionaries are going to share from their heart what we need in Cambodia. And so we would just lay those two prayer requests with you. So with no further ado, we'll go to that. Cambodia is ancient. It is not Western. It is not modern. It's a country that has beautiful mountains, beautiful ocean. The people are friendly. 
a very dark place spiritually. Everybody's always searching for things, but they think that money is the answer. Turning a lot more to alcohol, uh, the gambling. It's a country that has people that live for self. They worship anything with the intent of getting the things that they want. And live for instant pleasure and don't really know about the true living God. Cambodia is a very proud nation. They're proud of their ancient heritage. They're very proud of their religion. Buddhism is what they officially do here as a religion, but most people know very little about Buddhism. They don't know anything about Buddhism, really. Uh, they know about Buddha. Uh, his program, the religion that he started, was in fact to deal with the issue of sin. And his solution to that problem was to meditate, to, to free oneself from all connections. He did believe in reincarnation. He claimed to have 500,000 lives. And in his last one, he achieved nirvana, which means you become nothing. It's like blowing out a candle. You become nothing. Extinction. The people have a mixture of animism, Buddhism, and ancestral worship. It's spirit worship and honoring the spirits, trying to do this and that to get blessings, to get good health, to get riches, to get a better job. They're true animists. Uh, their vertical, their fear of spirits. It's a deceiving religion where they believe these gods are taking care of them, but they're always in fear. They earn merit, not because they care about the sin problem, but because they want more possessions. They want health. They want a better life. The altar's out front. They, they put incense out front. And mainly what they're doing is they're trying to honor the spirit of their house to bring them blessings, to bring them good health. So it's all pragmatic, it's all whatever's going to get them to the next step in life. But they're very proud of it, and it's their religion, it's their king, it's their nation, and it's a matter of national pride for them. Our current ministry is a ministry of church planting. We're working in a rural area, a city of Kokong, down in the southwest part of Cambodia. I'm also very engaged right now in a church plant in a part of Cambodia called Talo. Uh, it's a village way out in the middle of rice fields. There's no roads to it. I wind up riding through rice fields on my motorcycle to get to it. We um, do a lot of evangelism and we do a lot of discipleship. Discipling on personal issues that come up all the time. Trying to see them grow and hunger to reach out to people and really form a church. I have opportunities occasionally to go out uh, witnessing with Michael, so that gives me another means to be able to get out and meet with people and talk to them about the Lord. We do um, evangelism through medical work. There's a government hospital where I'm allowed to work as a volunteer, uh, helping with training, helping with caring for patients, and uh, in that capacity I'm also able to do a lot of witnessing and teaching Bible. Sharing the faith which here in Cambodia is very difficult because their, their God, whom they revere as a God, taught them while he was alive that there is no such thing as God, that you cannot know the Creator. The main thing is building relationships with people, uh, drinking coffee with them, talking to them across the, in, in the yard, uh, meeting them in different places at the market and things, and building relationships. Uh, and, and that takes place in so many different ways. We don't have a problem finding people to talk to us. We have a problem finding people that will be interested in the God that we serve. Some of the obstacles would be people that say, well, I'm, I'm too busy to talk about God. People believe that if they become a Christian, they can no longer sacrifice or pray to their ancestors. Brand new believers, one of the biggest concerns they have is who is going to feed the deceased spirits of their ancestors? They're in hell suffering. And on top of that, we're starving them. We're making them hungry because Christians don't offer offerings anymore. These kinds of things become great barriers to belief in Cambodia. When they're younger, they have a lot more dependence on their parents for everything. And if they're younger and they're turning away from, which is really the social network, their religion is kind of a social network, and in their parents' eyes, turning their back on their parents, which is very, very dangerous. It can be a lot of persecution. They are precious souls who have struggled, who go through persecution in ways that I can never imagine enduring. Many Cambodians think that believing on Jesus is believing in foreign gods. They do not dare to receive Christ because they are afraid their parents will dislike and put them off. 
it's a kind of serious problem when a member of uh, the family becomes a Christian or believes in Jesus. They're traditional people, and so to embrace Christianity would mean they'd have to step aside from some of their traditions because a lot of, of Cambodian traditions are uh, deeply rooted in spirit worship. The few Christians will not tell their faith to others because of fear their friends and the family will leave them. When someone becomes Christian, their friend will break out their relationship completely. But the Lord is powerful and He convicts hearts and people get saved. They overcome the persecution they know they're going to face if they become a believer. Yet some people know that Jesus is the Savior, so they become Christians even though they are family against it. I love seeing God work. I love seeing that I know He's here, it's His work, we're just His servants, His instruments. I can't think of anything I love greater than to open the scriptures and explain what a sentence, what a paragraph, what a story means and see a person's eyes light up with truth as they understand and grasp the truth of scripture. That's my responsibility as a missionary and that's what I love to do. My favorite part of the ministry is teaching the Bible and um, seeing new Christians grow. I love seeing when people turn to the Lord. I love to see people that grow in knowing scripture and are excited to tell it to others. And they have so much joy in their heart for serving the Lord. They are an encouragement to me and a joy to be around. And that is my favorite part of the ministry, to watch them grow in the Lord and to change and to depart from their sinful life and to follow the Christ wholeheartedly is very exciting. One of the greatest needs of the field is... Um, people coming to Cambodia. For people to be sold out to the Lord and depending on the Spirit to convict people of sin, to be a light, to be a genuine witness to people and see God work in hearts. There are no believers, but most of them are very shallow. And the teaching of new believers is absolutely essential in this country. The one true need in Cambodia is for people to know Jesus Christ. They are in bondage to the spirits. They don't worship ancestral spirits merely because they love them. They worship them because they're scared to death. That if I don't worship this spirit, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, that he's going to torment me, cause me to trip and break my leg. He may cause me to get cancer and die because I did not feed him with an offering this morning. People need to know about the true creator God. They worship so many false gods and never understand that there is one true God. Jesus Christ said, the truth will set you free. And that's what these people need. They need to know the truth so they're no longer enslaved to demons because there's freedom in being enslaved to Jesus Christ. What a great master we have. So you can see from the video very clearly that the prayer request for the Cambodians is strength for the persecution they know they're going to face. We don't normally explain that persecution to them because it's implied in believing the gospel. They know immediately what they're going to go through with their family and their, their neighbors in the village. And you could imagine a Cambodian village kind of this way. You know, there's maybe three or four major families and they're all intermarried, so everybody in the village is a relative, and people aren't mobile like in our society, so they're there for life. And could you imagine stepping out of the fabric of that society and not leaving physically and living there like that? It's very difficult. As for the prayer request regarding the missionaries, we need more co-laborers. Uh, we need more workers there. There's been a significant amount of attrition since we arrived. In fact, the older couple in the video 
uh, that you saw retired last year, so they're not on the field with us anymore. We have gained Rachel and, uh, Rachel and Nathan Waldock uh, last year as well. They came from India. If you remember in our prayer letters, uh, they were not allowed to go back to India because of a visa situation, so they're working with us. Praise the Lord. We're very happy to have them. But uh, Cambodia is a completely open country, and it has uh, very few missionaries, especially working in the provincial areas. So what I'd like to do just for a moment um, is to really kind of characterize in, in a few bullet points what our ministry is uh, for the sake of those who we are new to. We primarily are engaged in what I would call pioneering missions in places that are very rural. When you look at the makeup of Cambodia, Phnom Penh, the capital city, has probably about 80% of the population. There's 15 million people. 80% of those people, I'm sorry, I'm saying that backwards, 20% of that 15, 16 million people live in Phnom Penh. 80% live outside in the rural areas. I mentioned a church plant in a place called Dalo. That's a very rural, you could imagine the, the thatch huts or the wood houses on stilts. That describes the 80% of Cambodians. Only 20% live inside the city. When it comes to missionaries and Christian workers, that statistic is exactly the opposite. 80% of missionaries and Christian workers are in Phnom Penh reaching the 20. And 20% of us are outside reaching the 80. And so our ministry is really characterized by being in the rural areas, which is a very difficult place for us to live as Westerners. It's very hard to adapt to that culture, in fact, I would say, or that climate. And I would say that in reality, we really never do. We simply endure it. Uh, People ask us, what are the greatest challenges in ministry? And I would say personally, probably the physical aspect of trying to live in that environment on a perpetual basis. So we're dealing with pioneering evangelism, initially explaining the gospel to people that have no words for things like sin. There's no word for sin in the Cambodian language, the way you're thinking about it. We have a word that means bad karma. We have a word that means mistake. But we don't have a word that communicates what sin is before Almighty God. In fact, if we're even talking about God, they don't have a word for what we're thinking about God either, because God to us is a supreme being, whereas God to them is merely a powerful being, and there are many of them. Uh, So pioneering evangelism involves an awful lot of teaching up front. We do produce tracts, which I'll talk about in a moment, but you cannot rely on tracts or even a 10-minute conversation to convey the gospel to somebody because you're introducing so many new concepts Then we have, of course, the issue of pioneering discipleship. So you're taking a person who comes from an environment where ancestor worship is done. Morality in Cambodia has been utterly destroyed by the Pol Pot regime back in the 1970s. And so the church that we planted, uh, actually we we weren't involved in church plant, but we took the church plant over a few years ago. Uh, The discipleship issues there are immense because they're coming from a background that is a lot more pagan than what you and I are used to, even among unbelievers in the States. And so we're going through fundamental issues of Christianity. We're going through very deep personal issues with people in a second language. And uh, one of the issues is when, when people are angry and fighting at home, they're not using the talking head kamai that you learned to listen to when you were in language studies. They're using very slangy and fast and... Uh, So the discipleship issues are continual, constant, everyday uh, pressure on the ministry. Of course, our main focus in terms of our goal, what are we trying to accomplish in Cambodia, is to produce churches like this that glorify God in those communities. So we always have an eye to that when we're doing the evangelism discipleship. We want multiple believers. We're trying to get multiple families together so we can form churches like this. And then along with that comes leadership development And what I would call church strengthening, that's a step that's oftentimes overlooked in the New Testament. But Paul went back to these churches sometimes two or three times. He wrote letters to the churches when he couldn't go, or he'd send a delegate like Timothy or Titus. Because the churches, once they're started and we leave, aren't ready just to be dropped. They need continual care going forward. So those are the things that really characterize our ministry, uh, the main core of it. And again, we're doing that in rural areas outside the capital city, and where we were living in Posat the last few years, uh, there were no other Westerners there doing that kind of work. So we're really very isolated. We're isolated from other missionaries because, as you can imagine, if they're in Phnom Penh, they're far away. And if they're in the province, they're somewhere else, you know, scattered. And uh, so it can be a very lonely work. 
Another aspect of the ministry that I did not anticipate, in fact, when we came here on deputation, I never told you I was going to do this, but as I began to become familiar with the circumstance there, I saw the need for it. Uh, With a few other missionaries, we started a literature association where we're writing books in the Cambodian language. Uh, In my hand here, I've got a book. This is actually something of a gospel tract written by missionary Forrest McPhail, who's a veteran missionary there. And this gospel tract starts off by asking the question, what does Jesus teach about uh, honoring parents? I think, well, why would you start a gospel presentation with that? Because, as you saw in the video, Christians are accused of not honoring their parents because they don't offer sacrifices or burn incense to them. So they're accused of dishonoring parents. That's a big cultural issue for Cambodians, is showing honor to ancestors, parents. But also because when we preach the gospel, we start with Genesis 1-1. And one illustration we use to emphasize to Cambodians the creature-creator relationship is parents and children. And essentially what we're telling a Cambodian is... You were created by God in a sense, like Paul is saying in Acts 17, you are his child, but you have now run away to somebody else, and you're honoring that person as your parent. And then we go to discussing the, uh, the redemption that's in Jesus Christ to reconcile that person to their heavenly father. So that's one book. We have uh, others as well. Uh, I've got a couple copies of this you can look at on the table. This is called Christians and Alcohol in Khmer. And this is written to Cambodian pastors because they're the ones that are usually getting together and having uh, the drinking parties. They would be the ones buying the alcohol to put on the tables for a church during a wedding or something along those lines. A tremendous and very destructive issue in Cambodia. Um, And just to highlight at the very end about the, the Literature Association, why is this necessary? It's absolutely vital that we write materials in the Cambodian language from the Cambodian perspective because... They have issues in their culture that we don't and vice versa. If I could just use this illustration, you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is dealing with the issue of food offered to idols. Who here has ever struggled with that? Neighbors never given you a dish and said, hey, I offered this to some god this morning. It's for you. (laughs) So when you read an American commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what you're going to see is the commentator taking the principle out of that passage and applying that contextually to us in a way that makes sense. And we have to do that. We do the same thing with Isaiah chapter 44, where where Isaiah is talking about chopping down a tree and using part of it to burn, uh, to have heat, one of it to cook food, and another part of it we're going to make into a god and bow down to it and say, deliver me, for you are my god. Well, we don't do that here. So we're going to principalize that passage and apply it in our culture in a meaningful way. Now imagine translating that into the Khmer language and giving that to them. The very meat of the text that they need directly, they're not going to get. And some American application of the text that they don't need is what they're going to receive instead. And so our intention with the Literature Association is for us as missionaries to really grasp the culture and the problems of the Cambodian people and apply the scriptures in a meaningful way to them. And so that's what we're doing there. So that kind of characterizes our ministry in a few bullet points. Again, we've been there uh, since 2009, and uh, we so much appreciate the ministry of this church to us. We know that you guys do read through our prayer letters and pray for us. A number of the members of the church are on our prayer letter distribution. And if you'd like to be on that, just uh, sign up on the table. We've got some paper that you can write your name and email address on, and we'll add you to our distribution. And then, of course, the unique relationship we have with you that we were here at the beginning of Community Bible And you guys were uh, involved in the beginning of our ministry. And we are very grateful for your involvement and continued support and how uh, you come behind us and support us. I can't tell you when you're isolated in a very difficult environment dealing with issues you never have experienced in life, knowing that the people of God are behind you is absolutely vital and uh, just invaluable to us. So I'd like to take a moment this morning as well and share with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, something that's been on my heart lately as we've been ministering to churches here in the U.S., I've been thinking about how we preach the gospel in Cambodia. We start off with people that have little or no understanding, actually pretty much no understanding of the Bible and how we have to baby step people into understanding what we're talking about. And I'm going to highlight a few things this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a continuation of a message I preached here Back in 2007, so you may still have your notes from 2007, I don't know, maybe you don't, 
or you're new, ask somebody else. Maybe they kept their notes in their purse or their Bible or something. But uh, I'm going to read here from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, from verse 17 down to 25, and then the first five verses of chapter 2. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the word of God, uh, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Chapter 2, the first few verses. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, uh, proclaiming to you the testimonies of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. There are those words again. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So again, because I preached this once in 2007, I'm not going to rehearse my entire sermon. I'm just going to highlight a few points for the sake of getting to what I'd like to talk about this morning. First of all, we see what I would consider to be the thesis of the passage here in verse 18. Chapter 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we see this conflict, I would say a conflict in values. It is the power of God to those who are being saved, but to those who are not being saved, they regard it as foolishness of no value, of no intellectual value. Throughout the passage, we see two themes constantly going back and forth. Those themes revolve around the words power and weakness and wisdom and foolishness. In fact, we saw that in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you look down in verse 22, you see what the Jews and the Greeks are demanding. The Jews are demanding a sign. That would be a demonstration of power. A sign is a very powerful thing to a person seeing it, and it's a demonstration of supernatural power. And the Greeks, of course, are seeking wisdom. And what's happening is the unbeliever regards the message of the Bible as weak and foolish, and Paul is trying to tell us, no, to the contrary, to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And even in characterizing his own ministry, Paul says, I came to you in weakness and not with wisdom of speech. Why? So that the power would be from God and your faith would rest in God and not in men. And so you have this constant interplay back and forth between wisdom and foolishness and power and weakness. And then we have Paul's concluding statement in the first section here in chapter 1, verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So essentially, man is demanding to see something powerful and something wise. And Paul says, no, we're going to give to you Christ crucified. The very thing which they regard as being weak and foolish. And there's tremendous, um, I just came up with a Cambodian word that's not going to work in this message. They look down, they despise the message of the cross. Because to them it makes absolutely no sense. Commentator Gordon Fee says of this particular message, uh, or this chapter here, that Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms. Sort of like, Fried ice. You cannot fry ice. How do you, how do you even do that? And so Christ and Christ crucified is something that doesn't make sense to them. And that's why they regard it as a weak and foolish message. But what I'd like to do is focus this morning on those two words, and I'm going to throw in there the word gospel as well. And the reason I'm doing that is this. As I think about our challenge in Cambodia, 
we're starting from scratch with people. If I want them to understand the power of the gospel, which is Christ and him crucified, I have to explain these terms very carefully. And if we're honest about it, in our own culture, the words that I just mentioned, Christ, gospel, and crucified, are not things that we use in the normal course of our discussion at work. They're not things that we would talk about regularly. It's not something that has a normal value in the English language outside of church or the context of trying to share the gospel with somebody. And sometimes the meaning gets a little bit flat. And I want us to see this morning what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 is the scandal of the cross. It's a very scandalous message. So I'm going to highlight those three words briefly this morning. So Christ, gospel, and crucified. Of course, the word Christ means anointed. It comes from the Greek root, root word Christos, which translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed. The practice of referring to the king in Israel as God's anointed starts in the book of 1 Samuel, chronologically, where Samuel is told to go down and find Saul and anoint him. Saul comes up to the mountain where, where Samuel is. Samuel anoints Saul. Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to lead God's people. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Saul, of course, exalts himself, does not exalt God. God tears the kingdom away from him and says to Samuel, Why are you still mourning Saul? Get up and go anoint the one that I'm going to show you. And he goes and he finds Jesse, goes through all of Jesse's sons before he finally gets down to David, the last one. And God says, anoint him. He's the one I have chosen. So he pours the oil on David. David, of course, right then is filled by the Holy Spirit and begins to lead God's people. And throughout the rest of Saul's life, David refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed, which is to say the king that God has chosen. That's what, the Lord, that's what the word anointed means in that context. I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So Christ is essentially the anointed one, which indicates the one that, the, the one that God has chosen to be king. Now, I'd like you to hold your place here in 1 Corinthians and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2 for just a moment. Psalm chapter 2, considered to be a Davidic psalm. Peter refers refers to this psalm as the words of David in Acts chapter 5. Psalm chapter 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's Yahweh God, and against who? His anointed If we were reading this in Greek, in the Septuagint, we would come across the word Christos, which means Christ, his Christ. So against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear apart their fetters and cast their cords away from us. So all these nations are saying, we're not going to submit to Yahweh, and we're not going to submit to his king, his anointed. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is Yahweh. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them, that is, these nations, in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion being, of course, the place of God's throne, the temple, and David's throne. And so we see here uh, that the word anointed and king have an overlapping meaning. We get down to verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Son, in this context, is a special way of referring to the king in Israel. In fact, David was not the only one referred to as the son of God in this sort of context. But there's a very special and unique way that God regards the king as his son. The Lord is saying, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give these nations. These are the nations that are saying we will not submit to the Lord or his king. I will give them to you as an inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. And then he continues at the end of the psalm to tell them that the kings of the earth must submit to the king in Israel. So we see that the word Christ, referring back to the Lord's anointed, is a clear indication that the Christ is king. And he's not just the king in Israel. 
Notice from the context of this psalm that he is the king of all of these nations that are saying, we will not submit to Yahweh. And that expectation goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, where Jacob is blessing his son Judah, and he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. And the scepter will not depart from Judah. What is a scepter? The scepter, of course, is a physical symbol of the king's authority. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, and unto him will be the obedience of all the nations. And so this expectation that God was going to reconcile the nations to himself through the king in Israel and rule over them goes all the way back to the forefather Jacob blessing his son Judah. And those expectations are in David's mind as he reads or as he writes Psalm chapter 2. The nations are saying, we're not going to submit. And David, with full confidence in the word of God, back to Genesis 49, is saying, oh, but yes, you will. The Lord has installed his anointed, his king on Mount Zion. And so we see here that the Messiah, the Christ, is not just a great king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, he is the most powerful person in all of God's creation, save for God himself. That is who Christ is. If we were reading in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees in the night visions, one like a son of man, a term that reflects son of God, a kingly figure coming in the, in the clouds. And he is brought to the ancient of days. And what's given to him? A kingdom and dominion. So that what should submit to him? All the nations and families and tongues of the earth are going to submit to him eternally. So the Christ is the most powerful person in the universe. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God's chosen king in Israel that's going to rule over all of the nations without any dispute, without any possible rebellion, because ultimately he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And he's going to smash them like pottery if they don't submit. If we were reading in Colossians chapter 1, Paul spends a great deal of time explaining to the Colossian church who Christ is. He says that we ought to give thanks to the Father who has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of who? His beloved Son. Again, reflecting back on that Psalm chapter 2. And Paul explains to us about this Christ person, this Son of God, that he is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things and the ruler of all things, visible and invisible. And it doesn't matter whether it's a heavenly spiritual power or if it's an earthly political power. Christ rules over all of it. And he is the reconciler of all things as well in Colossians chapter 1. Moving on to the word gospel. Christ means king of kings, the Lord of lords, God's chosen king who is going to rule over all of the nations. This is why we preach the gospel in Cambodia, by the way. Buddha never claimed to have any right over all the nations, but I'm telling you now, God did. And he claims that right through his Christ, his anointed one. And so we go proclaim the gospel Now, if you look in any lexicon or concordance, you're going to see a very simple two-word definition of what gospel means, good news. If you continue looking in that lexicon or concordance at the references where that particular word is used, you're going to find how it's used, which is this. It's not just any good news, like I could say to you, good news, you could say 15% by changing to Geico. Good news, uh, your cancer is curable. Gospel is good kingdom news. Gospel is news that pertains to a kingdom of some kind, usually proclaimed by a herald, a messenger of the king. I'll give you a few examples going all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, we would come across the word gospel in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. What is the good news? Your God reigns in Zion, and the passage continues to deal with the restoration of the kingdom in Zion. That's good kingdom news. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus Christ is born, the angels say in in verse 10 and 11, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. There's that word gospel. Of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the holy city of David, there has been born to you Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There again is that royal connotation. It's something being heralded by a messenger, an angel, about the kingdom. And in fact, in this case, about the king of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, we have John the Baptist preaching the gospel of God in verse 14, and here are his words, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Again, the gospel being kingdom news in the mouth of John the Baptist. 
And in Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus goes through all of their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So I've gone through Old Testament. I've gone through an angel before Christ's birth or announcing Christ's birth. I've gone through the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus himself. And I'm going to give you an example here. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Give you one example from Paul himself. Now, when we ask people what the gospel is or how it's explained, we often think about the Romans road, which would come between, say, the end of Romans chapter 1 to the second half of that, verses 18, chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 4. But did you know in that section of material, the word gospel is only used one time, and it's incidental, actually. If you were to ask Paul, what is the gospel, and have him define it for you in the book of Romans, it would happen in the first few verses here of chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, verse 2 starts with the word which. That tells us that the gospel of God is now the subject of what Paul's talking about. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Going back to that, that practice of referring to the king of Israel as God's son in a very unique way. Concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. This is again pointing to Jesus' right to the Davidic throne who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus, that's his name, Christ, that's his position and title, our Lord. Let's read a few more verses here. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And there we have that expectation that one day all of the Gentiles are going to submit to the Christ, God's anointed, the King of Israel. So gospel is good news for sure, but particularly the gospel is good kingdom news. And I think so far all of that is good and well. We think about the coming of the king, proclaiming salvation to all the nations. That is definitely good news. There is no problem with that. The problem comes when we move on to the word crucified. Crucifixion was a very horrific thing in the ancient world for many reasons. Not only was it incredibly painful, it was not intended to kill anybody, it was intended to torture them until they were so weak they finally died. But one of the main aspects of the crucifixion that you and I often miss in American culture, because as was mentioned this morning, we're not an honor-shame culture. We sometimes miss these dynamics. It's not the pain of the cross, but the shame of the cross. People were crucified on high places, visible in public places along roadways, so that the masses would see them and jeer. They were the scum of society. People that committed really bad crimes didn't always get crucified. There were other ways to to, uh, carry out capital punishment, but crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. Traitors of the state, runaway slaves, the worst of society. Crucified is something that happens to the weak and the foolish. Crucified is something that happens to somebody that nobody regards as an honorable or a good person. Nobody that has any redeeming quality. It is the worst possible death of any person in the Roman Empire. You think about Philippians chapter 2. There's an incredible vertical motion in that passage. Paul starts off by explaining that Christ was equal with God. He comes down in the form of a man. And if you think about the society of men in that day, the lowest of men would have been slaves. He came down as a servant, as a slave. And even more than that, he was faithful to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And I don't think Paul there is honing in on the pain of the cross and how hard it was to be obedient because of the pain. But because of the motion in the chapter there, he's going straight down to the bottom. The shame of the cross. The lowest possible humiliation that could possibly happen in that society. Therefore, God greatly exalts him. And we're going back up and gives him the name that's above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ, there's that word Christ again, is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. 
So the problem here is not that Jesus is the Christ is good news. The problem is this. Christ is crucified. How can you have the most powerful person in all of creation except for God the Father himself endure such a humiliating death, dying in complete weakness? Without a kingdom, the charge over his head, king of the Jews, to mock him. You see, that was a stumbling block to the Jews. They were expecting a king coming in the clouds with power. They were expecting a Messiah coming to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And what they got was a weak Galilean man crucified on a Roman cross. Talk about ruler of the nations. They were expecting power. They got weakness. They were expecting deliverance. They got death. So they couldn't listen to this message. It was folly to them. As Paul again says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, it's a scandal that Christ is crucified. Those two things don't go together. They can't happen like fried ice. Christ can't be crucified. But you know what he was? And Paul says, regardless of what, the, what powerful sign the Jews ask for or what wise-sounding message the Greeks ask for, we give them this and this only. Christ and him crucified so that your faith rests in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. Now, to conclude this morning, I would say this. Paul's point in this message is very simple. What he is saying is that the power of God is expressed in this gospel that Christ has been crucified and in nothing less. It's not, there's nothing else. There, you, you cannot add to it. You can't add a sign to it and make the message of the cross more powerful. You cannot add a slick message to it, a slick sermon, and make the power of the gospel more powerful or more wise-sounding. You have nothing to add to what God has done already. Paul's trying to get across to the Corinthians here that the gospel is the power of God and Christ has been crucified, and it's nothing more than that at all. What I'm trying to say this morning, though, is actually kind of the opposite of that. That the power of God is this gospel message that Christ has been crucified, and it's nothing less than that. I misspoke a moment ago. I meant to say that Paul's message is it's nothing more. I'm saying it's nothing less. And the reason I'm saying that is because, going back to my introduction... When we talk about Christ crucified in this culture, none of the things that I just explained to you comes across the mind of an unbeliever because they think that Christ is probably Jesus' last name. They don't understand what it means that he was crucified as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And our evangelism oftentimes lacks the power of God because we're using all the right terms, but it's almost as if we have this impression that if I say the right thing, God's power is automatically there without the understanding. We would refute that in our teaching. And in fact, Paul would as well. Paul would rather have five words to explain something to somebody than 10,000 words that are meaningless, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What I'm trying to say this morning is this. When I'm in Cambodia and I'm facing that Cambodian man or woman, I know they don't understand Christ and him crucified. And I have to go into a lot, I have to put forth a lot of effort to explain to them what that means because God's telling us in this chapter that message, Christ crucified, is the power of God. And you need that here too. So I come back and I talk with unbelievers and I think about their situation. This country is running secular so fast, and the generation of people that are living right now are so biblically illiterate that we could walk up to them and say the gospel is Christ and him crucified and they would have no idea what you meant by that. And we need to take the time. They need to understand that Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The gospel message is not uh, a message from a democracy that you could get saved if you choose this or elect not to. The flesh will elect against God every time. We're proclaiming the kingdom of God. They need to know what a kingdom is and they need to know that there's a king in this kingdom named Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will not be elected democratically in their future. 
Whether they like it or not, they're going to stand before him in judgment because that's what kings do. They call you to judgment. I think a lot of our preaching in the U.S. has fallen short. Or maybe I should say it this, maybe not preaching, but maybe our explanation of the gospel with our neighbors and our family and our friends has fallen short because we're not giving them the impression of who Jesus Christ really is. And they're coming away thinking it's just a good choice. They need to know, brothers and sisters, that our God reigns. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the author of all creation. He is going to be the finisher of all faith. He is coming again one day in the clouds with power for sure. We've read Revelation 19. We know it. And they need to be reconciled to him before it's too late. So I wanted to share those thoughts from a missionary coming back to his culture and having a burden for the gospel message here. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Rich. You want me just to close it in prayer? Okay, I will go ahead and do that. Our great God and gracious Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the darkness of this world, the power of Satan working in our own society here, understanding the depths of our depravity in our flesh, what an incredible joy we have to know that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. As we sang earlier this morning, we rejoice and exult in you because now we are counted as sons of God through Jesus Christ. We thank you that all power and authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And there is nobody else that we can trust in. There is no greater name than Jesus, who is the Christ. But our prayer this morning, Lord, turns to our unbelieving neighbors and friends, co-workers, family members. And really to ourselves as we try to reach them with the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we explain to them who Jesus Christ is. To explain it in a way that they understand exactly who the person of Christ is and what his power is. What his position in your kingdom is. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to explain clearly the cross and its message. I pray, Lord, that as we preach Christ crucified and explain this to our neighbors, they would come away feeling the scandal itself so that the power of God will rest in that message that they regard as folly. And we especially pray, Lord, that as we carefully and prayerfully preach the gospel, that your power through the Spirit would work in hearts and that people, even in this very dark culture and quickly getting darker, people in this culture would turn to you and repent, that you would overcome the power of Satan in their lives and draw them to yourself through us, your church. We know, Lord, that you have saved us and formed us into churches so that we would glorify you. I pray that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.